0: So this is actually where we get, I guess, into the fun stuff for our lessons, where more or less, more or less, we've looked at a lot of the the basics of principles of bioethics. We got to do a deep understanding of NFP and female fertility and the harms of chemical contraception. I want to start looking into artificial reproductive technologies, fertility, sterilization, pregnancy issues now, Uh, and so I have ideas of where I want to go with this, but a lot of it is going to depend on the discussion that we have. So a lot of what I want to try to do is bring in some pastoral dimension uh, along with moral evaluations. There are going to be certainly some cases that are difficult to evaluate morally. However, at least from my opinion, when it comes to IVF, um, that's not very, very difficult. You shouldn't do it. But we're going to look exactly why and then try to maybe get into a few other issues. So this all really begins in 1978. July 25th was the day that Louise Joy Brown was born in England, the first IVF or test tube baby. Uh, where technology had advanced to the point where it could assist with, but even more particularly, substitute natural procreation. Natural procreation. <clears throat> and um, there are numerous procedures that we would fall under the title of artificial reproductive technologies, ARTs, IVF, in vitro fertilization, in vitro in the glass, and the petri dish is one of them. Um, We're going to look today mostly at IVF. If we have time, we'll look at a few other issues too. And then next, on Friday, we're going to look at frozen embryos, the extra embryos created, the moral dilemmas that come from that. So we're not going to really focus on that today. That was the first part that Donum Vitae dealt with, the status of the embryo, and then it dealt with the technique itself, but all within the overall context of fertility. Before we begin, and, and we're going to talk about this much more later on when we look at the fertility industry, infertility is a real cross and struggle for many women today. It's really, really a struggle. And you have women who, who can't have children and desire to have children, and then particularly very Catholic ones who get upset at the fact that abortion is legal, but yet they can't have a child. And, and our desire to reduce human infertility is a good one. And, and I think you just listened to Dr. Caldwell, and it's pretty evident that that's, that's what drives her whole, her whole mission is to help women in this case. Well, and so on the part though of the woman, this is a very important distinction. The desire for a child is good. Women and men should desire to have a child, but no one has the right to have a child. No one can claim I have a right to have this child. Why? Because why? True. It's a gift because it's a gift. Joseph is correct. Because it's a gift. You can't claim to have a right to a gift. So let's though look now with everything we've looked at, and what we read in Don Vitae and Dignitatis personae, even though I think they're all kind of all over the place. But what are the principles for medical interventions dealing with procreation? So this is gonna be any kind of technical or medical intervention. And there are different levels as we're gonna see. The first is in Don Vitae 4, even though it's like section four. The fundamental values connected with the techniques of artificial human procreation are two, the life of the human being called into existence and the special nature of the transmission of human life and marriage. The moral judgment on such methods of artificial procreation must, therefore, be formulated in reference to these values. So what are the two values? i kind of looked at these already. The life of the child or the dignity of the person, and we've already seen that, that the child is a gift, not an object of production, and has the right to be conceived as the fruit of a loving union, and that it's not just, the, 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 the child isn't just a product of human intervention, there's divine intervention. The soul is put into the body, it's connected to the body, it's a fully human person. The second is the transmission of life and marriage, that each child ought to be conceived responsibly within the context of of a loving marriage between two spouses. So this is the dignity of marriage. And the procreation, or a conception of a new life, ought to take place within the context of the marital act, marital act as that personal gift. Now, Dignitatis Personae from 2008 will sort of build on this because those are just very broad values. Well, how does it respect the dignity of the child, the embryo? How does it respect the dignity of the marital act within the context of a loving marriage? (laughs) Dignitatis Personae 12 will say, with regard to the treatment of infertility, New medical techniques must respect three fundamental goods. So it's sort of developing a little bit. The right to and physical integrity of every human being from conception to natural death, which is basically what the the, the dignity of the person is. The unity of marriage, which means reciprocal respect for the right within marriage to become a father or mother only together with the other spouse. So heterological is not going to be acceptable where, oh, I want to have a child, but I'm going to go sleep with another man. Not acceptable. And then finally, the specifically human values of sexuality, which require that the procreation of a human person be brought about as the fruit of the conjugal act specific to the love between spouses. So it kind of just fleshes out that second value that donum vitae gives. But here's where I think, though, we're going to, um, really want to focus, or we're going to sum everything up, at least in my estimation, <clears throat> and you could you saw it if you read the part from the Catholic Healthcare ethics. Any technical intervention must facilitate the natural conjugal act and cannot replace it. Any technical intervention must facilitate the act, which we're assuming here is happening within the context of marriage, and not replace it. So basically, assistance versus substitution. So the, the, the dignity of the child, in a certain sense, can be connected to, yeah, hey, you're not a product of a lab. so. It, substitution is wrong, but that really all ultimately deals with the embryos that are produced and how we should handle them or treat them. But in thinking about our discussion of procreation versus reproduction and the moral side as a human being, I want to highlight another point that I think I'd like to revisit over the course of our, our semester that I think could potentially be valuable for Catholics in trying to make this argument. And that is, The obligation to care for the most vulnerable and dependent populations. This is something for those who are interested in the book that came out last year, O. Carter Sneed's The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Fantastic. He teaches at Notre Dame. Um, And that's his big thing. It's like our law, our anthropology is basically one of an expressive individualism. And it's embodied in American public policy and law. Instead, we ought to have a preference for the disabled, children, sick, and the dying the weakest, including the embryos. And so our, our care, or our addressing this, is how do we care for these, remembering that we are embodied creatures, and showing compassion and friendship, that this preferential option for the weak and the vulnerable should guide our public policy. Now, it's his argument, and I think it's something that, hey, whenever we look at, well, you're, we're grading human value and moral status. Okay, fine, you want to do that, but I'm going to say then we need to show a preference for the ones that are the weakest and most vulnerable. I think that's going to be a powerful argument that the church can have. So anyhow... We're going to begin today with, what do y'all, does that make sense to y'all? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm talking from like a, like a pedagogical perspective, which I think ties into Catholic social teaching, yeah.
1: Are you saying that despite the fact that we believe everyone has equal dignity, <clears throat> we would be willing to like sacrifice that argument? Like even if they were to say there's maybe a moral status degradation, we
0: for the no, what I'm trying to say, we, I would say we all have equal dignity. And, but remember, it's like the social teaching, preferential option for the poor. Everyone should be treated justly. Everyone treated justly. But just as when it comes to economics, we're going to have a preferential option for the poor, well, then can we apply that to justice when it comes to bioethics? Everyone will be treated justly, but we'll have a preferal, preferal, preferential option for the weak, the disabled, uh, to show special care for them. That's what I'm trying to say. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with IVF. And as I said, next time, we're going to look at um, dealing with the embryo itself. So what I want to do is spend some time, and I I did a deep dive on this uh, last week, how exactly is IVF done? I'm going to try to do this for a lot of, of these different processes we know what it is how exactly is it done but i also want to incorporate it within again the internet different websites i try to find the ones that look the most reasonable what are the rates of success what are the rates of success and then also how much is the cost but we're going to get into that so basically let's start off you have an infertile woman or an infertile couple. Uh, I guess you could have other individuals, but let's just say that it's an infertile woman or a fertile couple who, struggling with fertility, makes the decision to investigate in vitro fertilization. They would go to one of the about 500 fertility clinics that we have in the nation. They could, I guess, go to their their doctor himself, and he could potentially do it, but normally it's in fertility clinics. And there's going to be Uh, an examination, a consultation, uh, and different types of tests to see if it's the man's sperm count or the woman's eggs or whatever, and then the decision will be made to proceed with IVF. Keep in mind, and this is really coming from what Dr. Caldwell said, the doctor is generally not there to treat infertility. He is there to sell you IVF. You go to her or a NAPRO technology, or certain other doctors, they're going to say, well, what's the the root cause of your infertility? Let's see if we can can find a way to repair it, particularly one that won't cost you as much money. So the decision has been made, and then the procedure or procedures will move forward. As I said, I want to talk about, when I did my study of this, the high level of failure. At all the different levels. Or that IVF isn't just, oh, let's go in and we're going to have a baby. There are a number of different levels that this video, which comes from an a IVF clinic, will point out. So I'm going to watch this video and then we're going to kind of go over the different steps. It's only about four or five minutes long. Wait, what is
2: happening? Uh, no. Be quiet, Sapper. <laughs> <laughs> Making a baby isn't always easy. Fortunately, there are many ways to parenthood. In-vitro fertilization, or IVF, brings the miracle of conception into a laboratory. It has led to the birth of nearly 10 million babies since the first successful fertilization procedure in 1978. So how does it work? Let's take a closer, step-by-step look at the process. Step one. Preparation. The IVF treatment process begins long before any egg removal and fertilization takes place. You'll need a thorough medical history before treatment begins, plus fertility tests and analysis for you and your partner. As the procedure gets closer, you may be prescribed birth control pills or estrogen to control the timing of your menstrual cycle and maximize the number of mature eggs available for retrieval. Step 2. Ovarian Stimulation During a typical ovarian cycle, only one egg becomes mature enough to ovulate. IVF treatment uses injectable hormone medication to bring a group of eggs to maturity to increase the odds of a successful pregnancy. The type, dosage, and frequency of the medication will be tailored specifically to you for optimal results. Monitoring of the eggs may occur daily, or every few days during this time, to determine when they mature. A final trigger shot is given exactly 36 hours before the scheduled egg retrieval, to finalize the maturation process. Step 3. Egg Retrieval Once the eggs are mature, it's time for egg retrieval. During this step, a suction device connected to a long, thin needle is inserted through your vagina. This will puncture ovarian follicles and pull the mature eggs out. Removed eggs are placed in a petri dish containing a special solution and then placed in an incubator for a short period of time. Since this procedure is mildly invasive, medication and sedation are used. 4. Fertilization Fertilization of the eggs takes place within a day. During a procedure known as an intracytoplasmic sperm injection, a single sperm is introduced into each mature egg. On average, about 70% of mature eggs will successfully fertilize. Step 5, embryo development. Now comes the growing and waiting. Fertilized eggs are monitored and left to develop over the next several days, with cells actively dividing. About half of fertilized embryos will progress to the blastocyst stage when they are suitable for transfer into a uterus. Embryos that are suitable for transfer can either be used right away or frozen for future transfer. Step 6. Embryo Transfer Within a week after fertilization, it's time to transfer the embryos. This is a short procedure that only takes about 10 minutes and feels very similar to a pelvic exam or a PAP smear. A speculum is placed within the vagina and a thin catheter is inserted through the cervix into the uterus. An embryo or embryos are then injected through the catheter into the uterus. After an embryo transfer, you may experience symptoms such as mild bloating and cramping, breast tenderness from high estrogen levels, spotting and constipation. Step seven, pregnancy. Within 14 days after the embryo transfer, a blood test will be done to determine if you're pregnant. If the pregnancy test is positive, you begin the journey of prenatal care. Pregnancy success rates per embryo transfer vary, depending on the age of the woman at the time of egg retrieval. If the pregnancy test is negative, you can try another embryo transfer if you have additional embryos frozen from the first IVL cycle. If you do not have remaining embryos, you can try IVF again. IVF has been used successfully for more than four decades. Talk openly with your healthcare provider about your options.
0: All right. So I think they did a pretty good job of, at least from what I understand of describing the procedure so let's go it over again, and I'm going to add in some data, at least data that I found, and I think helps to put a lot of this into a more practical perspective. First of all, you have the hyperstimulation of the ovaries and the collection of eggs um, by use of, of hormones, which, of course, do have side effects. From what I gathered, about 20 eggs are usually received uh, uh, retrieved, about 20. Um, Then, there is the collection of the sperm, usually through masturbation, which, of course, we're going to have moral problems with that. And then the sperms are cleaned to make them, I don't know, better able to fertilize. And then, as you saw in the Petri dish, they're going to fertilize all of the different eggs. Now, as they said, 70 to 80 percent of the eggs will fertilize. So let's say there's about 15 will end up fertilizing. And then they need, in order for them to be implanted into the woman's uh, uterus, they need to grow to the blastocyst stage, which is day five. However, from what I read, only 30 to 50% make it from day three to day five. So they may 70% will fertilize, but about half are actually going to make it to day five. Not all of them will. So if you had, you said like you had 15 and you have about half of those, so you're going to have about seven or eight that will. Then what happens is they don't talk about this here. They will usually do, and we're going to have an old class on this, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. where basically, in one sense, they're going to judge for embryo quality to see which embryo or embryos have the best chance of, of attaching, of attaching and then and developing and, and having the woman become pregnant. Um, there are also other serious ethical issues of saying, well, this embryo has um, Down syndrome or to be able to now sex select, or even to be able to um, do CRISPR and genetic engineering on those embryos. We'll talk about that. <clears throat> So basically, a lot of this depends, as they said, in my research, too, how old you are. The older you get, the harder it becomes. So at 35 years of age, 50% of those embryos are chromosomally normal. 35. 50% are chromosomally normal. What does that mean? I don't think it necessarily means that they don't have Down syndrome, but that they are healthy and viable. At 40, only 10 to 15%. So the, hard, the older you get, the harder it becomes. <clears throat> then it will be transferred into the woman. How many are transferred? Well, well, there are regulations for this, <clears throat> because they realize the octomom, yeah. that, that becomes a real health issue. And of course, the, the, the companies want to dignify themselves, and I guess the government wants to protect. Some say three, others say one. So, I would say three, one to three embryos would be implanted um, there, which, if you let's say that you had, uh, you went down from seven, let's say that half of those are chromosomally normal, you, you can implant two or three and still have some left over. Yes? From
3: what I've heard, uh, like the optimum phenomenon, isn't from IVF as, as much as it's from fertility drugs in general. No, it is, so, it, I mean, I'm just saying, if you see them with a big, with a big uh, pregnancy of five, six kids, it doesn't
0: necessarily mean it's IVF. there was some <laughs> some fertility intervention. Like you know
3: those follicle stimulants? Yeah. They, they use those for normal pregnancy
0: promotion. That's a good distinction. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Mm-hmm.
3: Because they have to put eight back in and they actually have control
0: put back in. And then how many they can re- also there's a partial how much they can remove too wait so you're saying you can
1: put in one to three, but it well, doesn't guarantee
0: that's not yeah yeah not at all but now again I couldn't find out whether or not how many there was no standard some will say they generally put one now some will say two or three in case one dies or doesn't connect or let's say all three connect and then the mom can go up and choose the one she wants and then it'll abort the other two so I mean you've got you got all those things there uh, but there are regulations. And so then comes the point of the hope for implantation and the hope for pregnancy. And here it comes down to also, too, a lot of it depends on the age of the woman uh, and the quality of the embryo. So under 35 years of age, it seems there's a 60% chance for pregnancy per transfer. 65%, 60% for pregnancy per transfer. So you could take those numbers and show that this is not a foolproof thing. It's it, It's much better than, let's say, it was 40 years ago. But then you're pregnant. That doesn't mean that you're going to go all the way to birth. Not all positive pregnancies lead to live birth. A 2017 study showed that 12% miscarried. So there's a, a significant miscarriage rate. 12 percent and then basically i saw 50 to 60 percent result in live birth so just because you get pregnant doesn't mean it's going to end up in a live birth now i did put on the the google page the cdc has an ivs success estimator you could type in your age and you could type in all these different things and they'll tell you what the 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 chance of success are as you get older it becomes more difficult. Now, the, the, the video sort of alluded to that. Well, if it doesn't work, well, we'll come back for another implantation of an ovary or, um, I mean, I'm sorry, of an a, a embryo or a whole IVF cycle. Now, the question that I have is, is the cycle cost, on average, ten to $20,000. So, what a lot of it depends on the number of regimens and the fertility drugs that need to be used, and it often takes multiple cycles. Now, what I didn't understand was is it the cycle, the whole routine, or is it just the transfer of the embryo? I'm imagining it's the whole uh, transfer of uh, the whole cycle rather than this simple transfer of the embryo. I don't know how much it costs. To transfer the embryo, let's say that if it fails the first time, uh, but it ain't cheap, it's not cheap. It 10 to 20K? Yeah, for the, for the cycle of IVF, with all the drugs and the injections and everything. <clears throat> so, you're going to pay for this. So, wh- what... When it comes to births, though, and I saw conflicting data on this, that basically the preliminary national data for 2020 shows that 73,602 babies were born, resulting from 301,523 cycles performed during that year. So oh, I don't know what the percentage of that is. I'm not a math, but it's well less than half. I mean, it's 25% basically of the cycles, 25% seem to lay to a live birth in 2021, 61,740 were born, basically accounting for one to 2% of births every year. Adding all that up, I think you probably would get the 10 million overall that have been born with, uh, through IVF procedures. Do y'all think that's a significant number? Sure. Did you say people that
1: go through that whole process is
0: about twenty-five percent? Well, I am just saying like the from twenty twenty that seventy-three thousand six hundred and two babies were born from three hundred thousand cycles. So we know so that's less than half. So you're looking at right at about twenty five percent. And the overall effectiveness leading to live birth is twenty five percent. And uh, granted, maybe it changes back and forth. So, you know, we're talking about something people are choosing to do, but it is not massively widespread. Do you have statistics on like, infant mortality? Of this life versus- okay, no, I don't. However, that's the next point, that the, uh, the issues with health of babies born through IVF. I didn't do a lot of research into this. I, I do know, in looking at some of it, they do tend to have a lower birth rate. There are also questions about aging. And that, that's what we don't know, like, because right now, Louise Brown would be about 45 years old. What is, what is the effect when they get into their 60s, 70s, and 80s? We, we don't know that. And, and the doc, like I said, the, the doctors that I talk to who work in the NICUs, the doctor, even the secular doctor will say the six babies, IVF, IVF, IVF. Doesn't mean that they're sick the rest of their lives, <clears throat> but there is an issue there. I don't know what the infant mortality rate is. If you can find it, let me know. I can put it in here.
1: Uh, it's increased by 45%.
0: Uh, what? Infer- infer- in the infant
1: mortality, especially within the first few weeks. Because so I looked up last time we talked about it. So, okay. There's a problem with the aging, possibly with the development of the lungs. But during the first few weeks, the rate's
0: about 45%. Okay. Higher. 45% <laughs> higher <laughs> in, yes. in the first few, uh, few weeks.
2: But the
0: tapers off. At about the end of the first year. After I'm gonna put that down first. All right, there's your answer. But why? And again, I, I don't know from what the doctor told me that I talked to, who's the NICU doctor. He thinks it's potentially because they were f- potentially frozen for a while. If they were frozen embryos, they would come back on a second cycle, that damages. But also the fact that they puncture the egg with a needle. That's trauma. And it sounds kind of crazy, but it's trauma. Uh, it's not like the sperm just going through. You're using a needle to do that. I, I don't know why. All we know is they tend to be sicker and weaker, and often end up in the NICU. So, is America the highest, the country with the highest rate of I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. I know Europe has a lot of it. I know Europe has a lot of it, because that's where we get to the fertility industry and the money that's being made from this. So what's what's the moral evaluation? Use the principles we've given. What is the moral evaluation regardless of the oh, effectiveness of it? What is the moral evaluation?
1: Hugh. Firstly destroys the nature of the act. Correct?
0: basically replaces the marital act. It substitutes. Yeah, even if it was done between using like um, so is it the homo... Homologous, yeah. So the, the, the parents versus another semen sample. That would be heterologous. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's because couples that are married, couples that are not married, neither of these are going to be acceptable. And regardless of one's intentions or circumstances, so what is the object of the act? The thing that you were choosing is to have IVF, you're willing to do this procedure in order to get pregnant, not within the normal way of doing things. You could do it because you really want a baby and because you have another child and you don't want them to grow up alone. You want to pass on your name. The circumstances could be all kinds of things, which might reduce your culpability, fine, But, and maybe you don't know, that's the thing. How many people really know? Most people have no idea, even Catholics, that this is wrong because no one's ever taught them. Um, Which is a problem. Even if they did, would they really listen to you? We'll talk about it. How would secular bioethics address this? From what we understand or what you understand from a purely secular perspective, what would be the moral evaluation that secular ethicists would give to this? Let's see, Byron, what do you think? I'm going to start picking, because. I was <laughs> late. Huh? <laughs> um,
3: in the secular perspective, um, I would say, um, you know, I have a confusion, actually. What is the secular um, uh, perspective of bioethics? You know, in, in, my, in college, I took like, bioethics. But it was like kind of this. We were looking same. So I don't know if uh, they have a different perspective on regardless of life, because mm-hmm. um, we, they were saying like, also like uh, sacredness of life or respect for life. Uh, but I didn't see like anything that was like contrary. Were you
0: at a, a secular college or yes. okay?
3: Yeah,
4: but in Colombia.
0: Okay, where? Catholic <laughs> Yeah, everybody's Catholic. Okay. <laughs> Well, no, I think you make a good point though that <laughs> like there's a respect for life, but then how do we define life and what is the moral status of the right. human being? Going back to what we discussed before.
1: Could you argue from a principle of integrity um, standpoint <coughs> of saying because of the rate of success is not like it's only 70 percent. It's not really high mm-hmm. that the, when you put your body through the risk of further damage um, you know, yourself or the, or the child to be born uh, doesn't really outweigh the
0: I don't know if I put that under integrity as much as potentially stewardship of health, depending, but you need to see what the side effects are, uh, the long-term side effects for doing it to the body. I don't know. Is it just (coughs) pregnancy and then miscarriage? I guess you could say there's some mental issues or whatnot. What about just the procedure itself, Isaiah? I I think
3: from from a secular perspective, there wouldn't be a problem, right, because from that perspective, it's... The same thing happening. It's still a sperm <clears throat> fertilizing an egg. But who cares where, it, where, or how it takes place? Mm-hmm. Like mechanically, the same. It's the same thing.
0: Yeah. So it would be more and and I would also say if you would take a utilitarian perspective, or like a, a even if you wanted to argue about the death of the embryo or whatever, the proportion of good that would come from the mom being happy and the family being happy and the child getting to be raised outweighs whatever negative impacts you could have. One of the articles that I think I put, I don't know if I put it already for you to read or it comes later, was from this secular author I read a couple of weeks, a couple of years ago, saying that people who are making bioethics arguments are actually doing damage because they're stopping the progress of helping all these people, that we're the bad guys. So I would say probably, yeah, you would say that like, well, the good, if you're doing it for a good intention, because there's not, going to be, there's not going to be necessarily an objective moral evil, or at least in the same way we understand it. And the harms do not outweigh the benefits. And so why not? Why not? That, of course, is not going to be our position, because I would say not only our respect for the marital act, that you can't substitute it, but really for the questions that come up with the status of the embryo and what, how these embryos are treated, which we'll discuss next time. So what I want to do, though, is ask us a few questions, we can maybe get into some other, let's look at a few other forms of, of ART very briefly, then I'm going to get into some pastoral questions. What about drugs to increase ovulation or fertility? Good,
3: yeah, it should be good. Yeah. So what sort of drugs? And, yeah, initially. So long as, I mean, the...
0: So, the, the Dignitatis Personae talks about this, number 13. And in general, you're right, I think John brings up the question what type of drugs are we talking about? But basically, techniques aimed at removing obstacles to natural fertility, fertilization, as for example, hormonal treatments for infertility, surgery for endometriosis, unblocking of fallopium tubes, or their surgical repair are listed. All these techniques may be considered authentic human treatments. Because once the problem causing the infertility has been resolved, the married couple is able to engage in conjugal acts resulting in procreation without the physician's action directly interfering in that act itself. None of these treatments replaces the conjugal act, which alone is worthy of truly responsible procreation. So they're assisting. Now, you granted the question like the Octomom and these fertility drugs, you know, what is the case if it does lead to a woman having five? Babies, the damage to her health. That's a question that could be considered. But in and of themselves, as long as you are assisting, not substituting, it's acceptable. What about artificial insemination?
3: What type? Well, is, what type? There's the, uh, the old assist method, which is different than the substitute method, where I mean,
0: there's a different. Well, OK, a couple of distinctions first. The first distinction is are we talking heterologous or homologous? So, if it is heterologous, where you're taking the semen from someone who's not your husband, not acceptable. Homologous is it acceptable? Well, it's going to be a question of how the, the, sperms are, the sperm is, is taken and how it is done. Now, there's something if you read it in your textbook called intrauterine intrauterine insemination IUI um, where basically the husband would use a perforated condom sleep with his wife have the intercourse and some of the where the, where the, the act would take place and some of the semen would be collected and then basically inserted Deeper within the woman's uterus. Uh, you can read more about how that procedure is done. That appears to be, or as the textbook says, acceptable. Donovite says homologous artificial insemination within marriage cannot be admitted except for those cases in which the technical means is not a substitute for the conjugal act, but serves to facilitate and to help so that the act attains its natural purpose. Now, Again, that's from 1988. Things, of course, I think, have advanced a bit since then. Uh, but you can go and read about some of the moral evaluation of the intrauterine insemination. The other one, which I don't want to spend a lot of time on, which was kind of a big debate back in the day, about 15 years ago, was the GIFT procedure, the gamete intrafallopian Transfer where basically a sperm is somehow like collected and inserted into the woman's fallopian tube uh, through a syringe, like a shot, basically, as far as I understand it. This was debated back and forth. Some Catholic ethics have said yes, some said no, but it's expensive and it's so rarely done. I don't think you're going to necessarily encounter it. If you do, there are resources for it, resources to, to, to look into it. What I want to do, though, is there are other ones, too, but most of these are not going to be acceptable. There are all kinds of different ones that either are not going to be morally acceptable, or if they are, are so rare then you're not going to see it very often. IVF, you're not going to see very often. I can tell you in my 23 years as a priest, I've maybe encountered not just ethical questions about IVF, couples who were in the pastoral situation where they were thinking about choosing it or had chosen it, two or three
3: three year I've taught, I've had maybe five or six, in an average high school class, at least five or six. That were products of? Yeah, so this is, I mean, every time you come up to the subject of morality, it's like, you gotta, you just gotta think a lot about it because you've got kids sitting there that'll literally start crying in the middle. of. That is days. my next question. I tell them they're just like redheads, they don't have souls. <laughs> 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 that
0: is okay, but look, that's, that's my, that's my next okay. What I want to do is, is try to, as best I can, confront these questions, yes, from an ethical perspective. IVF is pretty easy to figure out, but from a pastoral perspective. The questions of how to advise a couple who wants to have IVF. They come to you, and most of them, like, they don't know any different. They maybe have heard, because they were raised with a Catholic school, that you shouldn't do this. And they say, Father, we're, we're having fertility problems. we've we've got the little IVF brochure, we're thinking about doing this because, gosh, we really want a baby. Or what about the couple who's already had it? In my encounter, it's the people who've already had it. And many who didn't know, right or wrong, they just thought this was good, they want a baby, we have technology, let's go ahead and use it. I think the real big question, too, is talking to a child or adult who is the product of IVF, and you don't know, and by us calling in the question that procedure. They get very hurt or damaged. Maybe they didn't know, you know, maybe they knew they were but they never, they never thought twice about it. The parents get mad at you. How do you do with that? And then preaching and teaching about it from the pulpit particularly since it hasn't really been preached about for so long. Um, their intentions are good. How could you deny these people for having a child? I want to throw those pastoral situations out there. What do y'all think?
1: We have, and then they have two children. But I see it that right now it's really a lot of cost in our family because two children, one of them autism and one of them mental illness. But it really because like we I know about that but it's like it's really difficult how to talk about that because it's like if I talk something it just make them suffer and hurt because they really desire to have a child but
0: natural way they can Oh yeah, well I think you bring up a, a great point. Let's talk about talking to a family member or friend who's had it. As a priest, because they already think you're going to judge them, how do you talk about it? That's that's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. What do y'all think? Because we got we're going to have to talk about the pastoral applications of a lot of this stuff.
1: It's an opportunity for these couples who uh, view infertility to promote more like adoption, even just being with those who are elderly and care like caring, giving I guess their create their creative side, of their desire to helping others, and maybe like even kind of subvert conversation by promoting that more in the parish. Looking at partnering with local places that does adoption or nursing homes and encouraging couples who know that struggle with that. And then like kinda of subtly I guess going like when the opportunity provides itself to discuss it if it comes up. But you know, like
0: kinda of talking about it without actually getting... Ever- well, I think that's um, a gra- I think that's a great idea. I'll put that I'll put that passage there at the end as a way to say, all right, you can't do this you can't do this, but let's take that desire to give of oneself and channel it another way. Teresa, as a, a laywoman, what do you think?
4: I'm sure you've walked. Maybe I misheard you, but you've only had
0: two or three people come. Back to that. Well, no, I've had plenty of people come about fertility. Oh. Well, that's a, that's a set. That's a whole separate. We're gonna have a whole separate class just on fertility. On that have, that are.
4: I'm so scared to tell father, he's not gonna, you know, talk to me about it. And I'm like, oh man. And then they do conceive the baby, and
0: they're finally so happy. I don't know. It's tough. Yeah. So I've only had a few who've actually been in that. I've had plenty. You've come to me, or I've walked with, who do have fertility issues. We're gonna have a whole separate class on that, which I think is the bigger, overarching issue. I'm to be a little scared to talk to you guys. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So what do you think the preacher? Te- what do you think should tell people?
4: I mean, I think- There's like a clock ticking, and so they, all their friends have had babies. They've been at everybody's weddings. They're hosting everybody else's baby showers. Now it's a big thing on social media to reveal the gender of the baby ahead of time. It sounds crazy, but it's all they're thinking about. They are completely bombarded with it. Oh yeah. I mean, they can't. They don't want to go to mass on Mother's Day. They don't want to. Like, it's huge. And so then you're like, well, I want to love you through this. Like, I don't know what else to do except your hand and say, like, I mean, there was one lady fairly recently who was like, I literally just, I had my treatment today. And I was like, oh my gosh, and she came to like a Bible study that night, just was
0: sitting there listening. So like, people complaining about their kids, and she's like, oh, I just want to speak. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, from my perspective, even though I've had very few come to me with the IVF, probably because of the same reason, also, I was working with a demographic for the past 10 years that didn't really get into that. But... The issue of fertility, um, of the, des- the good desire to have a child, the potential for thinking you have a right to have the child, the way you see it everywhere <clears throat> on social media, and yeah, everybody else is having oh they're having all these kids, and the cross that's the same thing I think I told you all. On Mother's Day, you're gonna you're, you're, if you give roses to the oldest mom, you're gonna get some people mad at you. Uh, and so, how do we? With the fertility industry, which is, which some of the articles I've been reading, I mean, these venture capitalists are pu- pumping billions of dollars into these fertility clinics and buying them up. You're going to see, what is, what is our message going to be? What is the narrative we're going to present to these women who are struggling so much? And now, as you'll see also, that big corporations are putting IVF as part of their benefits packages. So it used to be, oh, you couldn't afford it, but now you can. Also, with the freezing of eggs, and we'll, we'll sort of talk about that. As guys, you know, we like this is clear cut, this is how it is. Well, how do you, particularly these issues, deal with women more than that? You just can't say, well, I need you go read Donovite.
4: <laughs>
0: that, that's probably not going to be super effective at, at convincing anyone, John. I found that when you're talking
3: about stuff that just shuts, especially as a young male, I know I know the topics that shut the girls in my class now. i just like, who are you to tell me this? And there's just this fear that it's coming from a place of, of gotcha. Like, you know, the stoning of the woman, gotcha culture? It's like this gotcha culture. Turns out I've got a lot of passion and aggression about these sorts of issues. And if you turn on the men, like a fire hose at a riot, the women are like, okay, first he's coming after the guys. And he's telling them that they've got to shape up and stop. So if you come out and hit him right in the mouth with, how many men don't pay attention to a woman unless she's tantalizing them with sex? Or how many men, you know, you start hitting these things and you start creating an environment where they realize that it's not going to be a double standard. You can slip in the stuff that they would be shutting down to because after following up right after just excoriating the guys for being addicted to masturbation, pornography, you know, you know, all this stuff, the women are like, OK, okay so now I know he's not just going to come after us because that's kind of the narrative Mm-hmm. So, I find that there's an openness when you come after guys for, for not accepting adopted babies. That's a common male thing. Like, men don't want an adopted baby, especially selfish men and looking at porn and masturbating all the and They think this whole thing's about their. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's. Oh, yeah. So, I find that if I use my aggression and my, my natural charged upness about it, but turn it on the guys, the guys like it too. Because they come up afterwards and they're, they're like kind of pumped up. They're very like, oh, this guy wants to hit me in the mouth. It's cool. <laughs> and, i you know, seriously, especially like the football players. They Come on, bro. In response, you know, very much so I find you have to you have to turn this, you got to start with start with the guys. It does leave some space for the girls
0: to hear some things. that mm-hmm. And I'll close with this because this is a much larger discussion, and, and I think it, it's easy for us to, to know the truth. This is what the church teaches, and to be able to talk about it. And this, I think, is what we were talking about when it comes to like, first-person narrative and understanding where people are coming from and accompanying them to the point where they can understand certain truths. And if they have come to you, and they've already done it. It's the same thing. The person who's come to you already had a tubal ligation or a vasectomy. How do you handle that situation? These are things that we'll talk about. Are the person who's begun treatment for their gender dysphoria? How, how do you handle that? These are these are pastoral topics that we're not necessarily going to be able to address just with a few minutes in class, but you can't take these issues as these abstract moral constructs. And I think this is in a certain sense, the problem with casuistry, we could sit and get all the cases we want here and we need to be able to analyze them, particularly the more difficult ones. But then how do you actually convince someone? How do you present to them when they're afraid of telling you, afraid of being judged uh, to be able to win them over? That's, that's going to be the challenge. Could you just give us like a quick, because you said you talked to
1: two or three people post-procedure. Um, Can you this give like a quick summary of how that
0: happened? Well, I mean, I, basically, that's a good point. Basically, we're so glad, or I'm so glad, that, that this child is in the world. Just like the woman who decides to, or has a child at a wedlock. I'm so glad, you know that the lord loves this child the child has a soul you know it's not some pariah the church doesn't see the child as some frankenstein's monster no it's a human person a human being with great value and great dignity and then also to recognize like hey i know your intention was good um you know you want to have a child and you want to the struggle that it is that infertility is you recognize that but then I, i guess i would sort of gauge um you know, how much did they know? Are they coming to me because they're sorrowful for it? Uh, a lot of the times that, you know, they would come and say, Father, I did this. I'm so happy with it. I know I did wrong, though. I know I did wrong. And so that's what comes to the point where what do you do? Particularly they come into to your confession. What kind of contrition do you need? I think I may have said this before fellas y'all got to be looking for even the smallest amount of contrition uh, the smallest amount to be able to grant forgiveness and so uh, you know I might say something like I-, I know this is a struggle, but let's say that you you if Jesus would come and say from uh, I'm granting you the gift of fertility would you choose to ha- never do this again oh yes father I would never do it again absolution oh. you know I'm looking for the smallest amount you know don't, In my 20, 30 years as a priest, I may have denied absolution two or three times. And that's in very, very extreme cases. You know, give them that, just like the person who comes and there's the vasectomy. Don't put any undue burdens on them afterwards. Um, Because so often, you know, the truth is, do they choose an act which is objectively morally evil? Yes, and seriously evil. What were their circumstances, and do they know? Do they have knowledge? Was it enough to bring to the level of a mortal sin where there's a significant culpability? Nah, probably not. That's for you to judge, to make some decision. But that's where, in this issue, to show mercy and to do the best we can to do preparatory work, to help people understand the gift of life, what the meaning of the sexual act is. I think if we focus more on that, then maybe... This would be easier to understand. But anyhow, we will come back and we're going to talk about what to do with the embryos, maybe surrogacy, and maybe artificial wombs. Which is an interesting question. Artificial wombs, uh, and particularly in regards to um, the, the the frozen embryos. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, or without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen.